Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. Hello, and I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. Good idea, and on today's show, thalassemia doctors, Dr. Kevin Kuo and Dr. Hani Al-Samkari. The best. They join, uh, I did a little interview with them mm-hmm. a few weeks back to talk about the world of thalassemia and learn about their work there. I'm also trying to pitch them on a buddy cop movie. I feel like Hanny and Quo. Hanny and Quo. Dynamic duo. Dynamic da, 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 duo. Da. Which I, they are kind of a dynamic duo. Right? So that was really my intention. I just Love wanted it. to interview them to like soften them up for my big <laughs> Hollywood pitch. You guys, you can listen. Let me know mm-hmm. if you'd be interested in that mm-hmm. film. Mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. We'll also have our latest Let's Talk Mental Health segment focused on aging and changing, led by Joshua Sterling Bragg, as always. And we've got some news and updates to share, all that and more on today's show. Welcome to Bloodstream. Hey, Bloodstream listeners, remember to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. Episodes of Bloodstream can also be listened to and shared directly from the Bloodstream Media Facebook page. Get out of town. Facebook, it's still a thing. And as always, If you've got suggestions for topics or guests, if you have any questions for Patrick or myself, ping us on social media or email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Is there a chance in our lifetime that that Facebook won't be a thing? I don't know. I don't. There's a chance, right? That's like a whole other podcast. That is a whole other podcast. I forgot. I'm sorry. Listeners, I had intended actually to remind you that the Bloodstream podcast, you know, this one, (laughs) is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right. Takeda. Takeda's <laughs> got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Me too. And they are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be, you can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. That's all you have to do. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say, thanks, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. PJL, I know this is usually the spot where you say something like, blah, 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 blah. Amy, how are you? That, blah, 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 that is. Typically it is, and I appreciate your it's adherence to our written, format. Blah, 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 blah. I write it unique every mm-hmm. time. I don't even copy paste it. I write blah, 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 unique every time. <laughs> To keep it real. <laughs> but I actually want to turn the tables a bit and check in with you, oh, son. no. Okay, this is dangerous. No, seriously, you had a really big, you know, health event. I did? <laughs> I would call it an event, really. You had a goal and you True. have, you've really um, shared a lot about your ankle journey. And so mm. I'm just wondering, like, how you're doing? How, <laughs> let, like, let's do a check-in. How's your chronic pain? How's your ankle surgery decision? Like, what's the, what's the sitch? Feels like a mini comp visit. You're like, okay, here we go. Lay it <laughs> yeah. down for me. Last time I talked to you, this was what was yeah. going on. Any updates there? Yeah, we just got like bullet points of like, your stuff. Flashback to moments with Dr. Kwan. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, the ankle, so brought that up in the beginning of the year was uh, thinking about a fusion, thinking right. about uh, replacement. Uh, where I am now You got is, a cortisone shot. I did, and I'm right. lined up to get my next one oh. uh, in just a few days, actually. Okay. And uh, I I could use it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm back to free cortisone Aww. shot level, a lot of hobbling, um, weird creaking and cracking. And I'm still looking at the you know platelet rich plasma is something I'm very interested in, but being a little um, I guess I guess I'm dragging my feet. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, a little bit on setting that up, but it's also the kind of thing that they do do in like strip malls. You know what I mean? It's one of those like health services that if you go to the wrong place, you could you could just yeah. it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. So anyway, I'm still kind of figuring out what the best move forward is. Um, but the ankle's doing okay. I'm hanging in there. I will say I have been doing. Real bad with my summer fitness plans. In fact, you'd think I had declared the opposite. (laughs) You'd you'd think I was like, you know, how much weight could I put on? You know, it's like (laughs) Christian Bale's prepping for some role. You know, like he's either got to put on or take off 40 pounds. I'm in the like put on 40 pounds. I I don't know what role. Maybe if anyone would like to cast me in something that can justify my weight gain, 
I would feel better about it. Will so. you tell the pizza story? How you were like, I'm not going to eat pizza. Oh my and then God. like the first, like the next day, Literally, like the, day one. The, ne- the day one without, con- I am not going to have any, I figured, let me cut out pizza. <laughs> if I cut out pizza, that'll be a big step forward. Yeah. The next day, the next meal I had after breakfast, making that commitment. Yeah. yeah, breakfast. That's what I ate for breakfast. So you're also learning that for me, <laughs> Pizza is a breakfast food, and it's not just bagel bites, right? Pizza on a bagel, you can have pizza anytime. No, 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 bagel bites. You can have pizza anytime. You don't need a bagel to be involved, though. Bagels are also very delicious. And another thing I eat far too much of, like the New Yorker in me really comes through with my poor food Mm. habits. Uh, Yeah, I had a pizza for the first meal, and I had a different pizza as my (laughs) next meal. And then I realized that I had violated exactly mm-hmm. what I said. I had to get two mm-hmm. pizza meals in. So mm-hmm. not going great. I haven't had any ice cream. So Which is a win. It's a PJL. win. I'll that take is it where I can get win. it right now. My sugar intake has definitely been, you know, better. But wow, I, I heard the term what, carbitarian, like a vegetarian, but really just mainly carbs. Nice to meet. I might that's, be the president of that group and not not even know. I, I There might be an unopened letter to me as president that I'm not even aware of, but... That's where that is at. So I'd love to tell you that I'm somewhere other than where I'm at, but you know what? That's the truth, and I'm going to still keep trying to push towards something more. But honestly, it's, I've been in a little bit of survival mode. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of out of it now. Natalie's back. We got a little more rhythm to the house. Yeah, but you've been single parenting for yeah. a couple of weeks. So it was a lot of just like yeah. I'm going from A to B to C, yeah. and I'm going to eat what I want to eat yeah. when I can because I just I don't have the discipline to also be doing that and kind of have given myself. I'm not beating up on myself as much as I have in the past when I've set some kind of goals and then pretty immediately behaved in ways contrary to those goals. I'm a little more forgiving and tolerant of where I'm at. So I I feel like that's some, you know, version of maturity. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that's where I'm at. And like I said, Natalie's back. So the unit's back together. Vivian is so cool. We found this awesome beach that uh, she adores. I think now she's been to three times in just the last few days. It's not far from our house. It's super private. It's in Marina and it's in a bay. So it's like oh, not big ocean waves. It's yeah. just like drifting ocean water. It's really friendly for toddlers. Yeah. And she loves it. She oh. loves it. She loves it. And beach, I feel good about like sand and water and she's toddling. So it's an environment where like, I'm not worried about head injuries yeah. or like if a fall is going to amount to something bigger, you yeah. know? So just... Things are good. Things That's are good on this so side. so good. I'm yeah. so glad the unit's back together. Now, That's what about important. you, Miss Board? Because you're not going to get out of the check-in just because you, like, anticipated Dang it. Dang it. I thought I'd get no, out. No, 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 no. You, I just went first. <laughs> and I'm going to even narrow it in because <gasps> you shared on the podcast a while back about starting a novel and, like, the writing work you've been doing. I think this was on mic, though it may have been off mic. So, listeners, you'll, you're either learning this or it's a reminder. But last time that I think just you and I even spoke about yeah. it, you had just finished your first draft. Yeah. But that was now like a couple of months ago? Yeah. Was, so, that was in December. It was like mid-December. Are you serious? That was in December? That was in December. Have we not talked about this in six months? I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, re- honestly, I don't remember, but it's been- What a, a terrible friend. No, it's okay. No, it's okay. Like a novel such a long con and like it's such, you know, you, you write just this little bit every single day. So it just, it's not- a, a, like a glamorous thing per se, mm. but the nah, sounds um, pretty glamorous to me. It's writing a novel, isn't that like the dream? Like you know, write the great American novel. That's, I don't know. Sounds pretty great good. American novel, but it's I'm I am like just trudging away on the second draft. If it, it's probably if I was a more mature writer, it's it it's probably what the first draft would be. Um, like my first draft was a disaster. It was just trying to to play with things, you know, like play with different points of view. And I wrote, you know, one scene three times that now isn't even in the book. You know, it was just, it was just this, uh, nightmare. And I discovered who some of these people were. It was great. It was a wonderful exercise, but this second draft has been primarily like a complete rewrite from like start to finish, Mm. but it has an actual structure. You know, I spent about, uh, I took like, a, you know, you're supposed to take like a, a at least a month off to just like put it in a drawer, go away, read, you know, free write. Just you have to, you know, 
put it away. So I did that for about, um, over the holidays, like for about a month, five weeks. And then I planned, like I, and it was very, that, that reading time was so re-energizing and inspiring for me to like, remember, Mm. you know, like the rhythms and why, and it was just so creatively juicy. And then getting back into it, you know, like mid January or something till about February, I, just planned and, you know, kind of dove into the characters a little bit more. Um, the, you know, the structure really became clear. And then I, and then I actually planned, like I did like an actual chapter outline and Mm. it felt really nice to not, it wasn't plotting per se, even though there was, you know, obviously there was some there. It was, it was basically beat by beat moments, but it was just nice. Like, now getting into it, I mean, you know, it's like months and months and months and, you know, I'm fo- I'm following it and it's there. I'm about uh, a little over halfway done, like 50,000 words. Whoa. And it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's terrible. I mean, I, I think, I think. The- <laughs> <laughs> is that the quote in the front of the book? It's, a quote. it's like, book. this is terrible. But I think <laughs> the like. The author. <laughs> the whole point of doing this and writing this is like to have the courage to write it awful so you can fix it. You know, it'll be, Mm. it'll be like, it is a, it is a long con. Yeah. And it's a, it's a legitimate skeleton structure. It is a legitimate structure. And in my meeting with my editor, she reiterated that like the story idea is there, like the arcs there, you know, now it's just doing it. So yeah, every, every morning. Every morning for about like, you know, an hour and a half, an hour, 45 minutes, as much as I can. Wow. And like trying to learn, you know, now that like the world has opened up, trying to learn to ride on planes, trying to figure Mm. out like, how do I write, you know, if I'm traveling somewhere, which is difficult. But also shakes your brain up in some ways too, that I imagine is helpful in some ways. And then like giving myself grace to not do that when it's too much, you know, and to really, you know, um, yeah, so it's been an up and down process, but it's still happening. That's so cool. 50,000 words. 50,000 words, That's a yeah. a lot of words. So wow. So many words, yeah. All right, well, we'll have to do another check-in. Do you have like a timeline that you're following or are you just hacking away? Yeah, I want this uh, like second draft to be done mid-August right before BDC. Oh, shoot. All right, we got to check in. Producer yeah. Keith, we got to check in with Amy, see how it's going. We get the thumbs up from Producer Keith. That means you know it's going to happen. Yeah. All right, I'm not going to let six months well, go Well, shoot, by now again. I'm like really accountable with my goal. Yeah, well, so am I, and it's going real poorly. So you can be okay. the one of the two of All us right. that actually is like doing the thing you say you're going to do, and I'll just be like, ah, I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> um, but good for you. That's really Thanks, fantastic. Mom. And, you know, it's not lost on me too that coming up just later this month, we have uh, a workshop that we're doing with not members of the bleeding disorders community, but another rare disease population that's all around spoken word. And again, like how does your internal experience benefit from your ability to express that through the arts in one way or another? Yeah. Um, breaking through in hemophilia, the musicals, obviously, you know, that that's sort of at the center of that project. And this workshop that we're doing with the cystinosis population, yeah. um, it's really leveraging how the, the writing process and yeah. like, how what is that? And then how do you actually speak your own words yeah. too in front of people? So I just love the intersection of health, the arts and yes. creativity. And it's awesome that you're writing a book and that's that's just very cool. Thanks, so Kyle. you got it. I have one quick news thing. Before I do we jump too. Into, I you have a news thing too. I have a news thing too. You want to do your news thing first? No, or should you I do go my first. You go, first? you go first. Okay, I'll do my news thing. I won't be too long. Last uh, On our last episode, which again, too, uh, thank you to Bo, uh, Effie, Effie. And Kyle, and Kyle for coming up. That was such a fun thing to do. Listening so back fun. to it as well, like getting to hear everybody's contributions on that topic. We yeah. got to do more stuff like that yes. for sure. Yes. And we've received that feedback. So thank you yes. for those who have given it. We've received and the positive listened. feedback yeah, thank you. about the panel. Um, but we also talked about a number of drug updates. And one thing that caught my eye, I wanted to mention, there is a, a dose confirmation trial, a phase one, two clinical trial of another hemophilia B gene therapy drug from a company called Freeline. And that trial, that phase one, two dosing trial has just begun. Mm. Uh, so they're, they're enrolled. There's no call to action. Um, they're on target for a phase three, that all important phase three trial, which is the one that ultimately leads to an application for uh, commercialization. That is set to begin if all goes according to plan in 2023. So just wanted to make mention while we have certain gene therapy trials and hemophilia B that are further along and there's headlines about those, 
there's also these other trials that are going and this is going to continue. So we won't always mention, especially phase one, two earlier trials, we won't right. always mention those. But on the heels of that episode from uh, last time with a bunch of mentions, when I saw this, I figured, let me do a quick shout out to this other trial just so people know it's on the radar. And that's it. That's all I got. What do you got? Oh man, I went to uh, the Portraits of Progress event last week. Yes. CSL, um, I don't know if um, y'all heard about this. Well, we actually spoke we, about it on on last, last episode. Yeah, last yeah. episode. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, was able to go. What was that like? What, what was there? Um, Describe the scene It was for a us. fancy art gallery in Soho, Manhattan. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, no, it was... It was and it did was, you walk around just saying, hello, I'm a writer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wore black. Nice, good, okay. <laughs> you know, because that's what you do. Um, no, but it was really, it was really lovely. And um, the gallery is, you know, a testament to not only the hemophilia B community, but the timeline of treatment in the hemophilia community overall and how far we've come. And, you know, the community members that were involved were so, I think, proud of um, their stories and mm. the awareness and the visibility that um, came with something like this. Um, there was such a wonderful spirit of really bringing visibility to the older generation and that mm. aging generation mm -hmm. um, of what they have been through, what they've seen and what they have survived. Mm. And it was really lovely. And so community members, if you're in New York here in the next like week or so, check it out. Um, we'll put all the information in the program notes. And I think- um, And portraitsofprogress.com. Portraitsofprogress.com. And you can actually see the event and see um, like the videos uh, that Believe actually captured of- um, um, the community members to hear more about their stories. And beautiful. And the portraits are beautiful um, by renowned British photographer Rankin. And he was there at the event. And he was, it was also, you know, it was great to see somebody like that, of, of that stature, who's had such, you know, an impactful career yeah. be moved by the hemophilia community. And he really was. He was really moved by our community members and our story. So it was really cool. Great. It was really, really neat. I'm glad you get to be there to take, um, yeah. to take it, not just to help with it, but to take in when it actually yeah. launched and people could celebrate it and yeah. enjoy it. So it was really cool. Cool. All right. And portraitsofprogress.com, if you want to take a look at the website and the, the virtual adaptation of it. And then, as Amy said, if you're in New York, head on down to Soho. You can learn more at portraitsofprogress.com. Um, but with that, we'll get into our interview with uh, the dynamic duo of Hanny and Quo. Uh, and then we'll hear from Josh in the Let's Talk segment. So let's do it to the interview. Joining me now, Dr. Hanny Al-Sam Carey and Dr. Kevin Quo. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to Bloodstream. Good morning, Patrick. It's a pleasure Thank to be you. here. So let's get started with, and we're going to talk about thalassemia. Last episode, we had a patient on to talk a bit about her experience of diagnosis and advocacy and a lot of the psychosocial elements of learning to live productively with something like thalassemia. Um, there's some intersection with hemophilia and other inherited bleeding disorders that we talk about a fair amount here on Bloodstream, though thalassemia is distinctively different. Uh, but Dr. Alison Carey, maybe to start with you, because you have a little bit of crossover experience. So what is your experience in inherited bleeding disorders? What do you do? And then how does that overlap with your work in thalassemia? Absolutely, Patrick. So I'm a classical hematologist uh, and clinical investigator. So uh, I, I uh, do clinical trials and clinical research. And when I, when I say a classical hematologist, I mean hematology that's not blood cancers. So everything from uh, bleeding disorders Got like it. hemophilia uh, all the way to, to hemoglobin disorders like thalassemia. Um, and, and actually in the bleeding disorder space, while I certainly take care of patients with hemophilia, um, my focus is actually taking care of patients with hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, which is another inherited bleeding disorder. Hmm. Um, about one in 5,000 uh, people uh, in the United States and in the world have HHT. Um, so it's actually rather common among the inherited bleeding disorders, uh, relatively speaking. Um, and this is, uh, this is a bleeding disorder whereby uh, folks have uh, really, really bad uh, nosebleeds. That's sort of the sine qua non of the disease. Mm -hmm. And then they also have gastrointestinal bleeding that's uh, chronic, and they can develop arteriovenous malformations or abnormal uh, blood vessels uh, in various organs in the body, in the, the liver and the lung and the brain. Um, and those can bleed too. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, a definitely a distinct character from hemophilia in that it's not a blood clotting disorder, 
but certainly these patients live with chronic bleeding. Um, and so that's, uh, uh, you know, I, I have uh, several hundred patients with HHT that I take care of at Mass General. Got it. Okay. And then for doc- Dr. Kuo, what's your background with inherited bleeding disorders? Beyond um, general hematology consults and my learning from um, a fellowship, I, it's rather minimal. <laughs> Got it. Fair enough. So then that leads to, let's talk about then thalassemia, because we do hear about it. As someone who, I live with hemophilia, when I go to hemophilia meetings, when there's clinical presentations or research going on, th- there'll be mention of thalassemia sometimes, or reference how this protein has some kind of interaction that relates to thalassemia. But my working understanding, as someone who's pretty involved in, in hemophilia, is very minimal. So what is thalassemia? Why do we do? Why do we hear it sometimes, Dr. Quo, in conjunction with things like hemophilia? But but how is it distinctly different? So I think I'll first set the, set the stage in describing what thalassemia is briefly, and then we're going to talk about the similarities and the intersection with uh, bleeding disorders. Great. Uh, like um, bleeding disorders. Uh, we're dealing with a, a missing part, a missing element. And in hemophilia, for example, the missing element is the factors. In this case, is the hemoglobin. Hemoglobin, as we all know, is in red blood cells. It's used for carrying oxygen. In patients with thalassemia, there is an imbalance in the globin production, which makes up the hemoglobin. And when there's this imbalance, there is a lack of production of these hemoglobin. Now, if you don't have enough hemoglobin, mm-hmm. you'll be anemic. So many of our mm-hmm. patients suffer from anemia, but more so is that beyond the anemia, there are what we call the, um, the effects, the, the complications spanning from this, and it spans from iron overload to the fact that the bone marrow, which is the site of production of blood, are not able to make enough blood causing uh, bone deformities, um, bone pain, Mm. uh, growth difficulties. Also, um, once the blood comes out, because it's malformed as a result of the fact that there's not enough of this hemoglobin, um, they -hmm. break down prematurely. It's called hemolysis. And when they break down prematurely, it causes a lot of different complications from head to toe anywhere, from stroke to pulmonary hypertension to gallstones to uh, kidney problems, uh, leg ulcers, Mm. and so forth. And so the intersection with blood disorders, as I see it, is that I think they all share the commonalities of the fact that they inherited, that mm. these are chronic lifelong diseases with, which are debilitating for many people if it's not treated. And even with treatment, these treatments are often supportive. Giving factors is a Band-Aid solution just like us giving Mm. blood to our patients with thalassemia. And that, you know, all of us are hoping that one day we'll come up with a curative uh, approach, like gene therapy, for example, which, you know, is already on the horizon for people with uh, hemophilia and soon to be for people with uh, thalassemia as well. Yes, and that's, I want to talk more about that, but let's go, you mentioned, um, you mentioned blood transfusion, and in the, again, in the previous episode, we had a patient who was speaking about her experience and referenced how, for example, things like blood shortages, which we've been hearing about now for the last several weeks, have a very direct impact on her life for that reason. What is the current state of treatment and intervention options available for people with thalassemia? It's actually highly variable, unfortunately. Um, thalassemia... Um, Given the word, you know, the name thalassa actually comes from Greek, you know, the sea, which means the Mediterranean Sea. Thalassemia is mostly Mm. found in uh, people of uh, Southern European, Northern African, Middle Eastern and South Asian and Southeast Asia populations. And this, you know, this span from east to west, as we can see, crosses different, um, not just geographic, but also socioeconomic uh, areas. We have many places that don't have adequate blood supply, where the blood supply is not safe. So even Mm. if patients do require treatment with the transfusions, they often can't get it. We have patients, I have patients from Syria, from Iraq, from uh, the Levant regions, um, from South Asia, who were, you know, from war-torn areas who were never adequately treated. Um, Mm. and, And they have complications from the diseases. Not only that, even if they are able to get blood, 
the complications coming from the transfusion is iron overload. And iron is extremely deadly in high amounts. You know, we, we, we talk about mm. people needing you know, iron deficiency and they, they need to take you know, iron pills and so forth. Our patients right. are completely the reverse. Without, mm. with, with too much iron in the blood, it can cause damages to the heart, damages to the liver, and uh, damages to the pancreas and, and other uh, hormone-producing tissues. And that, of course, can cause things like diabetes, heart failure, cirrhosis, etc. And that requires very expensive medications to treat. And those, and, and even with those medications, they're extremely expensive. You sort of wish you could take the iron from those iron-overloaded patients and put it into the iron-deficient patients on the other end of the spectrum, right? You know, because... <laughs> Yeah, How do we work that out? All my yeah. patients, I feel like, are either d- profoundly iron overloaded or profoundly iron deficient. You <laughs> got to get to that middle ground. Exactly. There's just no Goldilocks zone here, unfortunately. And so this is what I call a paradoxic uh, logic of care, right? Because essentially, you're like telling your patients, well, mm. I'm going to give you a, a treatment for your horrible, horrible diseases, which is called thalassemia. And that treatment is called blood transfusions. But it entails 100% side effect. You will get side effect from this. Mm. And those side effects are quite horrible if you don't treat it. And now I'm going to give you more medications called iron chelators to take out the iron, but then those have horrible side effects as well. So, right. so such, such supportive treatment is never sustainable. So I, alpha and beta, I know that these are, and I'm sure there's more distinctions within thalassemia, and I, I, I don't suppose we want to get too, too, uh, into the weeds, so to speak, on on you know the different variations. But broadly speaking, how does thalassemia break down? Alpha, beta, are those the two broad categories? What distinguishes them? Yeah, so you know the, we we actually group thalassemia a number of different ways uh, based on whether someone is transfusion dependent or non-transfusion dependent, uh, whether they need blood uh, on a regular basis or not. Um, uh, but another way is, as you stated, which is more of a, the the, the uh, categorization by the type of mutation they have, whether they have mutations in the alpha globin or the beta globin uh, genes, and so that leads to alpha thalassemia, mm. which um, is in, in in most circumstances uh, it, it's less severe than the most severe cases of beta thalassemia, but certainly can be severe and can actually lead to death in utero uh, when it's the most severe. Mm. Um, and then there's beta thalassemia, which really runs the gamut between you know, a beta thalassemia trait, something that someone didn't even know they had until someone did blood testing on them and found it, uh, uh, all the way to uh, severe, severe anemia from birth, transfusion dependence, Ultimately, uh, you know, a lot of the manifestations, there are differences, of course, between alpha and beta, but, you know, the, they, they both are diseases of, of anemia uh, and iron overload, uh, and uh, many of the chronic side effects of iron overload and of transfusions and, and the various, uh, uh, you know, treatments we use to deal with iron overload. And do patients have a difficult time getting diagnosed if there's not a known family history? When you mention things like anemia and bone pain, I just, I feel as though there must be these odysseys where people are getting misdiagnosed with other things because these are not symptoms exclusive to something as rare as thalassemia. Is this accurate or am I off base? Completely accurate. So especially in those who are not transfusion dependent. So the, the thalassemia that people usually think of are the thalassemia majors where they start eating blood between ages four months to four years. You know, parents will notice that the babies are not growing and, and they are not meeting milestones. Mm. And then that's when severe anemia is diagnosed and then you start transfusing them and then they, you know, they start developing normally. What really... Uh, it's, it's, it's an issue uh, for those people who have anemia, but the anemia is not bad enough such that it prevents them from developing. Um, and yet, because of the breakdown in the red cells, we talked about the hemolysis, and also the inability for the bone marrow to, to go into overdrive to make those blood, these mm. can cause complications later down in life that are often are not recognized as thalassemia. Things like uh, having uh, gallstones early on in life, uh, then having um, heart complications in the heart, having leg ulcers, uh, having a big spleen, or having these things called extramedullary hematopoiesis. These are essentially 
uh, blood cells that are growing outside of the bone marrow because, again, the bone marrow is going all over the eye. So, huh. so they actually start growing, and they grow behind the spine, have patients growing in uh, behind the lungs, and they, they can cause uh, you know, either paralysis in people if they're not treated, and often they're misdiagnosed as tumors, such that they go through runs yeah. and runs of biopsy, and then it, it turn out not to be tumors at all, not to be, because you know, the first thing people come to mind is, oh, man, maybe this person has cancer. And it turns out of that course. it's not even cancer, it's actually thalassemia. And, and this is why wow. Hanny and I and, and many of our colleagues have established these, uh, these centers of excellence. It's, it's, it's so that, because it's such a rare disease, it's, it's really difficult for a typical internist or, or hematologist to recognize all the signs and symptoms of uh, thalassemia. And so, you know, we're there to help to diagnose these very difficult cases that were otherwise would not have been recognized as thalassemias. And then there's also the, the reproductive component, right, Kevin, where, you know, uh, we, we can have two parents that both have very, very mild thalassemia, like a thalassemia trait, for example, who don't even realize they have thalassemia because no one's actually diagnosed it or told them they have iron deficiency and given them iron pills because mild thalassemia can look just like iron deficiency anemia. Mm. And iron pills, never mind the fact that they're not doing that patient any good, quite the contrary, but you know, they're lacking the diagnosis, uh, then they have right. a baby uh, and that baby has a much more severe form of thalassemia because nobody, they didn't realize what they had. They didn't realize they had a mild form and their, their partner had a mild form. And mild forms of thalassemia are actually quite common. Rare, it's much more rare to have more severe thalassemia, but the, the thalassemia traits, so to speak, are, are relatively common. How did each of you first get interested in thalassemia? And then how did you meet each other? Well, I'll let Henny go first and then, and then I'm going to go after yeah, yeah. So you know, um, I, you know, I, I I met Kevin uh, a, a number of years ago uh, at, at the American Society of Hematology annual meeting. Um, we have shared interests uh, in uh, patients with thalassemia and other related disorders like pyruvate kinase deficiency, uh, other disorders of red blood cells, um, uh, and and uh, you know have been working together ever since. Um, you know, how I became interested in hemoglobinopathies and, uh, and thalassemia in particular, you know, there's just such a need for additional, for, for not just doctors to take care of these patients, but for therapies to improve, you know, the care for these patients and ultimately, hopefully one day, you know, durably cure some of these diseases. Um, and, you know, when you see as a hematology fellow, when I saw the the substantial need in this area, it was something that really thought, I really thought to myself. Well, you know, focusing on these areas, I can do a lot of good. Um, you know, a, a, a lot of my co fellows at the time were focusing in other areas um, that were much more commonly tread. So um, this was definitely an area of need and something that I thought was just really interesting from a medical and scientific perspective, and a place where I thought I could do a lot of good. What about for you, Doctor Quo? I myself uh, have a rare blood disorder um, that affects the the way the enzymes work inside the red blood cell. And from a very young age, it, it doesn't really affect me as a whole, but I think it gave my parents a lot of grief because uh, of their lack of understanding mm. of the disease because it's relatively rare. And sure. so uh, growing up, I've had a lot of... Um, uh, discussions, you know, with both healthcare professionals as well as my parents in terms of what I can have, what I can't have, what I can eat, not eat, what I can do, not do. And, and there's lots of mysteries that surround that. And, you know, even with our GP who, who is an excellent GP, but, you know, but he, his understanding was also quite limited because, um, he, he himself wasn't an expert at the disease. And so growing up, I always felt that I want to penetrate that fog. I want to gain more understanding of myself. Mm. And so when it comes time to decide whether I should go to law school or medical school, well, I decided, well, I might as well know more about myself. So I went into medical school. And, um, huh. and from there, um, I, I began, you know, just to continue to focus on my interest in, in the red blood cells. And as I learn more, I have more questions and sort of that sort of just piles on. And I said, oh, I might as well just make a, make a living out of it since I can get some money off it and, uh, and learn, more about, <laughs> <laughs> learn more about myself, too. And, yeah. 
make some money off of this thing that I was born with. <laughs> no, but I think it's so valuable. I mean, I mean, as somebody who lives with hemophilia, I'm so appreciative every time that I meet a hematologist or an epidemiologist or a bioethicist or someone who's in some field of medical or clinical practice that actually themselves experiences the disease or disorder. It, I, I just, I, there are probably both ways uh, explicitly that we could identify and subliminally or implicitly that we wouldn't even know that your experience as a, as a patient and a person living with influences your ability to provide care, influences the way you think about break the research as it's emerging, what the needs are. So that really, not to sound too corny here, but that really warms my heart to hear that that's actually how you started in this area. Yeah, you know, for me, I, I just, when we got the, uh, we did the hematology courses, medical students, I just love looking at a microscope at the blood smears. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good reason it's too. A little, it's not, not quite as personal, but uh, I remember we got the box of smears on the very first day of class and I took them home and I must've been the only person in the class that just went through the entire box, like, you know, trying to figure out what I was looking at before the class had even started. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we need that level of commitment as well. That's important. <laughs> well, here's the thing, the prettier the blood film, the, the more complex the disease is. And, uh, and sometimes right. the more deadlier it is. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I had to learn something today. Uh, I know we only have a couple of more minutes, so I want to kind of round out our conversation talking about therapy development, gene therapy. You know, Rare Disease Day is now in the rearview mirror by several weeks, but I'm always reminded on that day of how within hemophilia, we have benefited from having development of treatments for decades now. There are options. So while gene therapy is on the not too distant horizon, it's really adding for at least those of us who have access to the medications that are available, which is unfortunately the minority of patients worldwide, but that's a whole nother topic. But from a scientific development standpoint, we're on the precipice, but there are other options. Whereas for 95%-ish of rare diseases, they don't have options. There are not FDA-approved medications available. So when we hear things like gene therapy is about to provide potentially a therapeutic for disease X, I appreciate that it's much different for disease X than hemophilia, 95% of the time anyway. So that long windup leads me to the question, where are we with clinical trials and research into gene therapy for thalassemia? And what are each of you in particular uh, keeping an eye on as data is made available? I think it's been a long journey, um, especially in thalassemia um, in general and also gene therapy because um, stem cells or cells within the bone marrow are some of the most pliable, more malleable cells and it's something that we can easily access, we can easily study. So this is why gene therapy was pioneered in diseases like thalassemia. I think we've made a lot of... That makes sense. Thank you. I think, I think we've made a lot of progress, um, but I still classify um, the, the therapy as a high-risk, high-reward therapy. High-reward mm. being that um, it's curative, meaning that you know, if, if everything goes well, you're walking into the sunset you know, with other diagnosis, and they'll make me unemployed, which is wonderful. The <laughs> con side, though, is that with the current technology, we're still dealing with, with what we call high risk. And, and what are some of the risks with gene therapy? Well, you have to go through what we call conditioning regimen to purge the marrow of the existing stem cells so you can put in the modified stem cells. That purging process uh, can you know, put the patient at risk of infertility and perhaps uh, cancer in the future. And this is something that we're all very cognizant about, that we're all worried about. We, it's very difficult for us to quantify exactly what that uh, chance is. And, and this is one of the biggest difficulties, I think, when, when, I, when I talk to the patients about gene therapy trial, is that we, we're talking about uh, potentially something that could happen 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And, and how do I quantify right. that risk? So to mitigate right. that risk, the FDA has mandated that all gene therapy patients must be monitored for 15 years. And the other, uh, the other types of risk are the integration of the gene product, you know, the modified gene product into the stem cells and the things that it can potentially cause. Um, again, you know, we're venturing into the unknown. And so 
uh, I often will tell my patients, I salute you for being the pioneers, for, the, for being an early adopter, for being so brave in, in trying out gene therapy uh, because of that. And uh, I think at the end of the day, in terms of, uh, you know, for those who are considering gene therapy, and especially in the context of clinical trial, I think it's, it's really based on personal values and preferences. And, and, and I think the, the experience, uh, the life experience of going through thalassemias and all the complications that has resulted will, to a great extent, affect how a person will decide on whether this is the right therapy for them or not. And, and what about you, Dr. Alsem Carey? What's your outlook on gene therapy? You know, I, I, I echo Dr. Quo's sentiments. I think, you know, in many ways, um, you know, just taking a step back, when we think of drug development and therapeutic development of rare disease, especially in hematology, hemophilia is really the example that, that many of us and other areas, uh, you know, strive to follow given the successful development of, of novel therapeutics in hemophilia and how just exciting and, and uh, impressive uh, a lot of the gene therapy um, trials have been uh, so far. You know, it's different between a disease like thalassemia and a disease like hemophilia, because with thalassemia, you have to do what, what you know, Kevin pointed out, the, the um, conditioning, right? So you have to right. give a whole bunch of chemotherapy. And, you know, when you give that chemotherapy, it wipes out the, the, the marrow that you're trying to replace with the genetically modified marrow, but it also does damage to cell, other cells in the body. And that damage may not be readily apparent for a long time. And so that's something that, that we always wonder about, you know, and, and we, this, is, this technology, this conditioning technology, it's not static, right? So it's, it's going to get better. Um, and it, it has already gotten better from, from where we were previously and, and hopefully will continue to get better. I think one day we'll get to a point where that risk, ben I'm not saying we're not there now for some patients, right? Some patients have disease severe enough that this, it, you know, the, the, the risk benefit is, is you know, uh, in favor of, of potentially proceeding with a, a therapy like this. Sure. We might get to a place in the future where that risk-benefit ratio changes even more in favor of the benefit um, and, and, and removes some of the potential risks of, of this conditioning. Kevin, you agree? 100%. Absolutely. I think, yes, you're absolutely right. I think eventually we will get to a point where the benefits will outweigh the risk and we'll be able to offer this therapy to many patients. And not only that, I think the price tags as, we, as the technology improves will come down as well such that it is not, you know, 1.58 million euros, uh, but rather something more affordable. Uh, and hopefully we can offer it to everyone, uh, you know, across the world. Well, it's interesting. I feel as though for all the differences, uh, some of the bottom lines here are quite similar. Thalassemia, hemophilia, when we're talking about gene therapy anyway, bottom line is it sounds as though it comes down to risk-benefit analysis for each individual patient based on the information available at the time. And there's limitations to those things, and that it's not an easy de decision, which is why making sure that patients have information so they're engaging meaningfully with their doctors and care providers, shared decision-making, optimizing for individual patients. That's why, you know, these are buzzwords that get thrown around in healthcare, but as we actually talk about specifically what people need to be thinking about um, and what the science is dictating we need to think about, they're not just buzzwords. They're actual practices and things that are important, which is why they get spoken about a lot and become buzzwords. So it's, I'm, I guess I'm feeling more connected to thalassemia uh, on the heels of this conversation, even though as we started discussing, it, it's distinctly different from hemophilia. But in terms of what people need to be thinking about, there just seems to be a lot of similarity. So I'm I'm very grateful to have met the two of you today and have had this conversation. I would love to keep going, but we are out of time for today. So I guess that means we'll have to do this again at some point in the future. So thank you for making the time to come and, and talk with me and share with our audience a bit about the world of thalassemia. I greatly appreciate it. And it was so nice to meet you both. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. My pleasure. Wonderful to meet you, Patrick. Thank you to Drs. Quo and Al Samkari, future stars of my buddy cop film, <laughs> uh, to be written by Amy Board as soon as she's another 50,000 words or so through You're right. her novel. What is it, Hanny and Quo? Hanny and Quo, dynamic duo. Amazing. With a colon. 
So Hanny and Quokola. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great film. It's about friendship and action. And, and thalassemia. Thr- and thalassemia. <laughs> <laughs> it's about friendship, action, and thalassemia. Yeah. Yeah, hitting theaters uh, really, really soon. Um, but anyway, thank you again to them for <laughs> joining us and teaching us a little bit more about the world of thalassemia. Where are we heading to next, Amy? Well, then let's go to Let's Talk. We have another mental health segment with Joshua Sterling Bragg on aging and changing. Let's do it. Let's Talk is a partnership between Bloodstream Media Media and Sanofi, and aims to create an environment where we can have open and honest conversations about mental health in the bleeding disorders community. Great idea. Let's Talk strives to shed light on the topics that are often invisible and not spoken of in the community and shares tips on how to care for your or a loved one's mental health. How wonderful. If you or someone you know has experienced feelings that have impacted your mental health, talk to your healthcare provider and find educational resources at letstalkmh.com. Santa Fe is proud to sponsor this podcast segment because they believe that each of us has a story. Visit shareyourwhy.com to meet the Santa Fe core team and hear more from them and members of the community about their story and passion for the hemophilia community. Now let's get to this week's Let's Talk segment. I don't remember much about my great grandma man. In fact, aside from seeing the same three or four photos throughout my 36 years on earth, I really only have one memory of seeing her in person. I think I was in middle school, only because I remember being aware of my body, of being self-conscious and slightly less free than the years before. The meanest of the neighborhood kids always told me I was fat, and that was something I'd hear throughout my life, constantly, from every angle. It was a joke in our family. It was a constant jab from the cool kids. And even one of my closest friends in high school said to me once, you know, for a heavy guy, you don't really have man tits. I remember thinking this is one of the nicest compliments I ever got. And for reference, I was five foot 11 inches tall and weighed 160 pounds. I would never be that skinny again, despite it still being an unrealistic goal of mine. I hadn't finished growing yet, and I had lots of aging ahead of me. And if... I have any of the same genetics as Grandma Man, I just might live to 100 years old, just like she did. It was near the end of her life when I visited her. She had trouble keeping names right. In fact, my aunt, who visited all the time, was always mistaken for somebody else. But when my mom walked in the door, Great Grandma Man looked her in the eye and said, Hi, Anne. You put on a little heft, didn't you? This moment hurt my mother. I could see it. It was the kind of low blow that I was becoming familiar with as a young man, And I would hear this story over and over throughout my life. We'd laugh about it at Great Grandma Man's funeral, but it was that kind of laugh that required looking at your shoes and blushing, the kind of laugh that wasn't accompanied by joy like other laughter, the kind of lonely laugh that felt like ice in your chest and ushered in thoughts of, at least it's not me this time. On the drive back from that visit, my mom mentioned something that I'm sure she thought was funny in its own way, but it stuck with me for years. She said something like, well, she doesn't know what's going on anyway. She's got Alzheimer's. I put on my headphones and looked out the window. I had no idea what that meant. But one day I would. One day soon. And it would shape my life for many years to come. Let's talk. With me and aging, the hemophilia started the role of just having different issues keep coming. This is Mike Hargett speaking with Patrick at HFA a little while back about aging with a bleeding disorder. Because of having joint degeneration as a kid, now I have full-on osteoarthritis because of those things. And I'm very in touch with the community and I have my team where I wear an orthotic, I have an ankle brace, you know, I do lidocaine infusions into my joints. All those things help with the aging of my body, Mm. but it also helps with the quality of life because with aging comes all those other issues of, you know, as a kid, there's so many programs with hemophilia. And then as you grow up aging in that regard, you're kind of like in limbo, like if you're between camp and then as an adult between blood billers or blood sisters, mm. where, where are you at? And if you don't find your group, then they go away. And that's what I hate about the hemophilia community is because sometimes aging leads to not having a voice because you feel like you don't fit in. And that's where it should be all inclusive, not exclusive. And finding out how 
as we age that even if there's programs for older older guys in mm-hmm. each generation, but also the support within our own community to be like, did you have a radioisotopic synovectomy? I did too. That's cool, man. I remember my dad telling me one time that he had always felt 24 years old inside, despite being in his 40s at the time. We were at a family reunion, and he had a stake on his face covering the black eye he would now sport from the pulpit for a few weeks when he got back home. I've always felt 24 in my mind and in my heart, he said, but then your body just can't keep up. I had a pretty clear idea of what he meant, only because I had watched him drag his limp body into the grass just an hour before. He had taken a Razor scooter out of my hands at the top of this massive, steep driveway and said something stupid like, I used to do this in college. Let me show you how it's done. And seconds later, at top speed and with his arms fully at his side, he plowed eye socket first into the asphalt. I've thought about this often, and as I get ever closer to 40 myself, I'm starting to really understand what he means. Weight is harder to shed. My balance isn't quite as perfect as it used to be. I've now thrown my back out a dozen times for a dozen stupid reasons, including rolling over in bed the wrong way while sleeping. And yet I still feel like I'm just a kid, making things up as I go along. We all age differently, depending on our genetics, our food choices, our privileges, and access to healthcare and medicine— Patrick and Mike were both born at a time where they could have been exposed to HIV and hepatitis during the blood contamination crisis of the 1980s. Despite this luck of the odds, Patrick lives with joint issues and Mike has had two life-saving heart transplants, something that would have been impossible a decade or two ago for someone living with a bleeding disorder. I don't have a clear idea of my own family history. I know my mother's parents died of old age issues, and my dad's dad died from congestive heart failure. He was a fast food and microwave dinner kind of guy. So I don't have much that I can fixate on. I don't have a rare disorder that I know of. I haven't had a reason to really go to the doctor in the past. Plus, I hate going to the doctor because every doctor I've ever had has told me I'm obese and told me to cut out dairy and bread and grains from my diet permanently. I'm really sick of the body shaming. But I found as I got older that my mind remained fixated on the one quiet remark my mother made that day as we visited Grandma Man. She doesn't know what's going on. She has Alzheimer's. In high school, probably in biology class, I learned about the disease, and that's when I first became afraid of it. In college, I learned more in some of my core curriculum classes, and the fear grew bit by bit. I became fixated on recording and photographing my life, Constant selfies with my flip phone. I bought a computer and a video camera. I started documenting life around me. I started to think often about the day that I would start showing symptoms. I started to think about my own mortality, about my own funeral, and how I want every image ever taken with my camera to play rapid speed on a huge TV above my casket. An amalgamation of memory distilled in digital media. I became obsessed with horror movies that transported me away into a world of fantasy and monsters and extreme circumstances, an escape from the reality that I very likely may end up forgetting it all and confusing my future wife for a nurse, trapping her in an infinite loop of yesterday. I got married young. I filled my life every moment with activity. I worked 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. for most of my 20s. I became a documentarian by trade, not just documenting my own life, but the lives of others through photos and video. I got divorced. I met my soulmate. I moved to Los Angeles. And one day at a thrift store, I found a secondhand audiobook of Still Alice, which I was terrified to listen to. But I did. I faced reading a book about a woman losing her identity to Alzheimer's. And I cried every single day listening to that book on the way to and from work until it was finished. In some strange way, it helped. I think it gave me the clearest vision of what that journey would look like for me when the day came. I was in my late 20s now, round about turning 30, and I was back in New York when my aunt and my cousins came to town for vacation. We did a lot of eating and a lot of bar hopping, and at one spot, we got into a deeper conversation with Helen, my mom's sister, and I mentioned something about Alzheimer's, and she said, oh, why the hell would you think that? And I said, well, because Grandma Mann had it, to which my cousins laughed, and my aunt said, 
she didn't have Alzheimer's, you knucklehead. She was 102 years old. Of course she didn't know what was what. I'll be like sitting at my desk doing like my regular job. And then all of a sudden something will catch my breath where I'm like, oh, f- I'm going to die one day. This is Heather, who is a co-creator of the project Death Differently, a documentary series in the works that aims to help reframe the way we think about and embrace dying. There will be one day, as much as in meditation, you're like, inhale, exhale, this breath is in the moment. And then there's going to be one day where the first inhale that you took when you came out of the womb and showed up in the world, there is a partner to that inhale that is the very last exhale you will ever give. And then you're like, oh, right. That's a reality of what this is. Every single person. And we almost can, we can like, we just rail against the thought that like, yeah, everyone else does it, but not me. Yeah. Not me. Like you're, you're in some like uh, observation tower <laughs> of other living beings, you know? Um, but it is wild. And that, that pairing of the breath to me is like one of the most beautiful things that every, every inhale has a companionate exhale. The size of my exhale when I found out that Alzheimer's most likely wasn't in my genetics was a blue whale companion to the inhale I had been holding in these past years. Fifteen years, maybe more. I had been deeply afraid of the end of my life and structuring a fair share of my decisions around making the most of the time that I had, despite my fear, and making assurances, fail-safes for my memories in my photos and videos that I had been collecting. Let me be clear, I have no regrets. I'm 36 now, and while I have accepted that I will die someday, and that I have just as good a chance as anyone to retain my memories straight through to the end, I still methodically document every significant moment in my life. I love this about myself. And as someone who cannot voluntarily create visualizations in my mind, all the documenting has proven very, very rewarding and helpful. But what has changed since that conversation with my aunt is that now I remember to put down the camera. I join in the conversations, and I live in the moment. I remember to soak it all in, to really live and experience life, to bask in stillness from time to time, despite the urge to constantly work and create and strive for greatness. I sometimes now sit and feel the breeze. I pet my dogs. I stare at my wife. I put the camera down and I laugh heartily, a warm, well-rounded and honest laugh, the kind of laugh that warms the people around me and restores a little bit of our youth. Being present is the best gift I've ever given myself. It transcends aging. It dilutes fear. It revitalizes the energy of the soul. It takes practice. And in the end, it feels a little bit like a vacation from self-doubt and the judgment, and the fear. It's like a micro-vacation from the driving momentum of the chaos of life. And we could all use a little bit of vacation from time to time. Thank you to Mike and Heather for their thoughts on this topic of aging, and to Amy and Patrick for giving me a place to talk about such things. Talking can be so healing. If you'd like some mental health resources, or you want to check out some of the conversations from our documentary, Let's Talk Mental Health, Check out letstalkmh.com and click resources. And let's talk again next month. Thank you, Josh, for the latest from Let's Talk. Thanks as well to Sanofi for making that possible. Amy, I'm also inclined to mention that the most current episode of the Global Hemophilia Report, episode five, which only just came out, is also all about mental health and hemophilia, Mm. particularly as it pertains to children, adolescents, and young adults. Great episode, critical topic, wonderful contributions from people like Dr. Michelle Whitcop at NHF, as well as her colleague, social worker, Samantha Carlson, another NHF staff member, uh, numerous other expert contributors. Highly recommend listening to that episode, especially if you have a child or a young person in your life who is struggling with their mental wellness. Uh, I would recommend you take a listen to episode five of the Global Hemophilia Report. But again, thank you, Josh, for the latest from Let's Talk. And again, thanks to the dynamic duo, Dr. Kuo and Dr. Al Kari, for joining us, teaching us a little bit about the world of thalassemia. 
Uh, I appreciated that, and it's interesting to learn about, you know, a, a cousin blood disorder, as it were, to hemophilia. A cousin. You know? Yeah, cousin blood Maybe disorder. Maybe even a nephew or an uncle Co- blood disorder. What, you have something against cousins? No, I love cousins. I just think that, you know, the thalon hemophilia, you know, hemophilia might have a slightly different relationship. That's all then, like, cousins. I feel like you know something that I don't, <laughs> and I want to but I'm afraid to ask more questions. I'll save it for off mic. But I also think that you know something, Amy Board, about what listeners can expect to hear on our next episode going live on July 8th. What will listeners have to look forward to? Get this. We're going to have Chris Bombardier back on to talk about the final summit. Who? Does anybody even know who Chris Bombardier is anymore? He had a baby and like, who even cares? Who even cares? Exactly. (laughs) Who even cares? That's the other quote on the book, right? (laughs) That's right underneath, okay. Yeah, who even cares? Actually, that should be our uh, episode title next week. Chris Bombardier. Who even even cares? cares? (laughs) Not not against it. Don't want to lock into it on mic. Not against it. Let's keep talking. Okay, great, great. No, listeners, it's going to be great. We're going to talk to um, Chris Bombardier about putting together the final summit and the writer, actually. Yeah, Drew Johnson, I think, is going to be with us as well. Which is going to be phenomenal in studio, which will be great. And then The Well with Jessica Lauren Richmond, who is also a co-host of Flow, the Flow podcast, is going to expand on our topic um, today of aging and changing. So it's going to be a great listen. Fantastic. July 8th, we will see you then. Reminder to check out bloodstreammedia.com where you'll find links to Flow, to The Pain Podcast, The Global Hemophilia Report, The Final Summit, and all of Bloodstream Media's podcasts for the rare disease community. And with that, that is all for this episode. Reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen. Share this episode with family, friends, and colleagues. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, you have a bleeding disorders or health topic you'd like to hear us discuss more. Is there an expert or guest that you're just dying to hear from that we haven't talked to? <laughs> Who could that possibly be? Who could that be? <laughs> but I bet there's somebody out there. Professor Macris. Or, oh, that's, that's a whole nother it's a whole podcast. Thing. It's a whole, it's a whole nother podcast. Or maybe you want to inquire about storytelling or casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcasts or believe limited films. Well, email us at mailbagbloodstreammedia.com. Again, that is mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with us on social media. You'll find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can follow myself or Patrick James Lynch, the most famous legend, Patrick James Lynch, on all of the socials. All of them? All of them. Actually, only four. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. That's it. That's all we're on. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. That's it. It's kind of (laughs) accurate. To varying degrees of actual responsiveness. But with all of that being said, I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Borg. And until next time, or July 8th, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.